This is The Verse, a weekly dive into the cinematic universes and beyond. We'll dissect the latest episodes, films, and news all fans from veterans to news are dying to know more about. Now, here's our team of pop culture superheroes we call The Verse Squad. Welcome to The Verse. Hello, Verselings. Welcome to another special bonus episode. As part of our extended Verse, we interviewed Jeremy Slater, the creator and writer of Disney Plus's limited series, Moon Knight. Jeremy is known for developing the Netflix series, The Umbrella Academy, as well as creating and writing the Exorcist TV show for Fox. We spoke with Jeremy about his hit new Marvel show and discovered that he may be an even bigger fan of the comics than us here at The Verse. Let's go to the interview. Well, welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for you know, taking the time to speak with us over here at The Verse. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Our pleasure. I mean, we were saying how uh, on our previous episode we just uh, released that Moon Knight is either tied for the best or our favorite Marvel uh, TV show that's been released. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in good company. Nice. That's awesome. Thank you. Growing up, we like, to, we like to have origin stories, right? Especially comic book fans, as some of us are. We're very fascinated with origin stories. So, you know, growing up as a kid, was there any film or TV shows that really got you, uh, you know, set on your path to be working in this industry? Uh, yes. Um, that's an upside down Jaws tattoo, if you can see it. Oh, nice. Uh, I see the Jaws see, in the background. Yeah. Surrounded by all the Jaws memorabilia in the background there. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I saw it way, way too young um, as <laughs> I had a, a terrible babysitter who let me watch a bootleg copy when I was probably five, something like that. Um, and it just it warped my brain. I was uh, anywhere there was standing water. I was like the sharks in there. Like I was afraid to use the toilet, go near a sink. If my parents were like, you want to go in a swimming pool? I'm like, you're out of your f- mind. Um, I was just, I was traumatized by all water and they had to sit me down and explain the concept of a movie and explain <laughs> that's a rubber shark and those people aren't really being eaten. Um, and once that clicked in, uh, I, I, I was kind of hooked from, I was just like, you guys have been trying to sell me on being a firefighter or an astronaut. And that all sounds terrible. I want to go play with the big rubber <laughs> shark. Um, so, so Jaws is still my favorite movie of all time. And it's, it's the, it's the one that kind of set me on this entire path, I guess. That's amazing. I always say Jaws is the best gateway uh, horror film. If like you want to get people into horror, that is the one to send them down. So it's, it's I'm sorry you had to ex- experience it at five years old, but you know, glad it you was worth arrived. It, I'm here now. It was worth it. Yeah. Exactly. We might've had the yeah. same warped babysitter. Cause I swear my, my babysitters were doing the same thing when I was young. So it was the eighties or nineties, I guess. It was the eighties. Yeah, early eighties. And it was also play on TV in a very like un- surprisingly unedited form too. So like, yeah. Oh yeah. You'd always get the, the severed leg on TV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So now it's we know okay. the answer to uh, when is too young for any given movie. And it's, we definitely know that it's too young if the, they don't know what the concept of a movie is yes. yet. Yeah, it's pretty much. If they nice think it's real and people are actually being eaten by a giant shark, it is way too much. <laughs> so besides movies, uh, growing up, did you read comic books as well? Or oh, was that was something obsessed. that... Yeah, yeah. I was, um, I was a military brat. Uh, my, my father was in the Air Force and he had a, a job that meant we were moving like every three to six months. I think I lived in 19 or 20 places by the time I was like 14. Um, so we were constantly just 
there was there was no permanence because you know you would be in Germany, then you would be in Virginia, then North Dakota, then California, um, and and every time you move to a new place, the TV shows are different, the channels you can get, um, you know, the things that your friends are into. The only kind of permanence that I feel like I had was every military base had the same spinner rack and they had like the same six um marvel comics they had like the chris claremont they were the classic x-men reprints of the oh yeah claremont run that era um the like the, the greatest intro to any to comic books that anyone could ever ask for um and, and like they had like amazing spider-man and fantastic four and a couple and a couple titles like that so um, I, I would obsessively collect the, the only comic books I could. And then I would buy like the Marvel trading cards from, from the PX. Um, oh, yeah. Like, you remember like the, the, the Marvel universe, like trading card sets. I do mm-hmm. all the cool characters and that there's like Greg Hildebrand art. Um, and, and those would kind of give me a glimpse of all the characters that existed in the MCU, like Moon Knight, who weren't showing up in the pages right. of those four or five things. So you'd sit there and you're like, who the hell is Punisher? Who the hell is, is Fool Killer or Moon Knight or someone like that? Um, and, and you would have to go back later once you actually found a place with a real comic book store and sort of like frantically try to fill in those holes in your collection. Um, yes, but I've been a, a Marvel comic fan for as long as I can read. Do you remember picking up a Moon Knight comic for the first time ever or? I don't, I, I remember, um, I remember, I, I really thought Moon Knight was cool based on the trading card, because uh, it was a, a really cool, it's like a blue shot of him like swooping off a roof or something. And so he was always like someone I was like, uh, visually keyed in as like, that's cool. Um, but what the first Moon Knight I read, that mid 80s were not the, or like late 80s were not the best time um, right. for the Moon Knight books. So whatever I read at the time did not leave sort of a lasting impression. It wasn't kind of until later when guys like Brian Michael Bendis and Warren Ellis and Jeff Lemire sort of took the character and started doing really unique, interesting stuff is when I kind of really became a fan of the character instead of just a fan of the design, I think. So I think that that brings us into, you know, our next question then, which is like, how did you come to be involved in this series now, the Moon Knight series? Um, I, I've desperately been trying to get in the Marvel camp basically as long as the M- I, MCU has existed. I, I think I had my first meeting with Kevin Feige when they were in production on um, Captain America, the first Avenger. Um, so way back in wow. the day. Um, and, and, and they were always on projects that never really panned out um, different characters that they at the time, they only had like five or six characters in their stable that they actually owned the rights to in those early days, if you remember. So it was kind of like you would come in and they're like, yeah, can you do anything with Power Pack or can you do anything with these characters? Um, so they were every time I got called in, it was for characters that like I wasn't necessarily passionate about and they also weren't necessarily passionate about. It was more like exploring different avenues. Um, but but after I had come off the Exorcist show that I did for Fox, um, and was right around the time they made the announcement that they were going to start developing stuff for Disney plus. And I was like, please just get me in the room. Like, this is my dream. Um, so they kind of gave me a list of like, here's four or five characters that, that Kevin is currently like exploring, like doing as a TV show. Um, and Moon Knight was obviously on that list and he was immediately the one I sort of gravitated towards. So they gave me a packet of like, here's what we sort of have so far. Here's the stuff Kevin is responding to um, that he, he has seen in the comics that he has found interesting or compelling. 
Um, but beyond that, I really had free reign to kind of pitch anything I want. Um, and yeah, I, I, I must've done something right. Cause I got the job. <laughs> I'm a little curious as to what else might be on that packet. Anything that that's out now that you can talk about or talk nothing about. that I can share some of the stuff that's been announced, but I never like say saying it because it sounds like uh, too good for that show, which wasn't the case. It was just that I didn't have a specific take for some of those characters. Right. Um, and also coming from a horror background, um, I knew Moon Knight, I probably had a better shot um, mm -hmm. just because of my experience doing that than some of the other characters that they're currently developing for shows for. That's awesome. So obviously you just said that you were trying to get in with Marvel for quite a long time. So like, how did, like, how did you feel? And like, when did you know, like, okay, now I'm in, like, this is finally happening. It, it was such a long protracted process. Um, cause I, I, you know, I, I worked with the two, um, creative executives from Marvel, Grant Curtis and Nick Pepin were our producers. Um, and they were also like in the writer's room with us every day. They were really our partners from start to finish. Um, so I worked with Grant and Nick to kind of come up with a take. Um, and then I was one of who knows how many three, four, five writers who went in and sort of we all pitched our takes to Kevin. Um, but it wasn't like the phone call the next day of being like, you got the gig. It was more like, yeah, there was stuff they like, and then we're going to keep developing it. And then they're going to reach out and talk about availability. Um, and I was in a, a weird position where I was kind of currently signed up to do a different show that um, I had to make sure I could actually get out of and sort of extricate myself for that. Um, because I've obviously had that experience before on stuff like, you know, Umbrella Academy is a show that I created and then had to walk away from because I couldn't get out of my contract with The Exorcist. Um, so it was just one of those things where everything was up in the air. And it was like, I don't know if they're going to want me. And if they do want me, I don't know if I will get released from this other contract. Um, so it was like, I, I feel like I was working on the show for like two or three weeks before I was like, someone, please just tell me if this is official. Cause I need to know if I can, like, I, I have just been one clenched muscle for the last. Three weeks. <laughs> Did you at least get like a pop the champagne moment? For, yeah, yeah. My wife okay. and I, like when it was official, official, we went out and, and had a very nice celebration okay. dinner and everything. But uh, but yeah, it was it was probably about three weeks of, of having a lot of things up in the air and being like, oh, feels like it's good. Feels like it's bad. Not really getting an answer. Um, but I think that's that's normal for anything of this size. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what was it about Moon Knight that really kind of like gra you gravitated towards that you really like it sparked your creative interest? Um, I liked the fact that it was uh, a completely unknown character um, to probably 95% of, of Marvel fans. Obviously, the hardcore comic book fans know Moon Knight, but, you know, the, the, the general MCU fans who just show up at the multiplex kind of had no idea who the character is, um, which is a huge luxury because if you're doing a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're doing a Hawkeye show, you have to, you have to pay homage to everything that came before. If you're doing a Loki show, you're inheriting someone else's stories. Um, and all the baggage that comes with that good and bad. And, and we really felt, and I felt like Moon Knight was a chance to a, have a, have a, like a, a really fresh start. Um, but also it's, it was such a weird, ambitious character. Um, there's a lot of superhero stuff that you get pitched where it's just kind of like, Hey, guy finds a magic thingy and it gives him some magic thingy powers. And then he fights another guy and then he wins. Um, and it's hard to get excited about that sometimes creatively and then say, yes, this is something I want to spend the next three years of my life doing, um, where Moon Knight was weird enough. And I knew 
from those packets that the thing Kevin was responding to was the weirdness, that it wasn't a case mm-hmm. that I was going to come in and pitch something that was too ambitious or too outside the box and get shot down. Um, I, I knew that they, that Kevin was going to respond really positively because, because he's always looking for ways to expand the MCU and, and, and he's always asking, how do we not repeat ourselves? How do we not do something that we've already done before or the competitors have already done before? Um, and, and what can we bring to the MCU that our fans have never seen before? So I was like, Moon Knight ticks all these boxes. Um, and, and, I, and since I've got a horror background and this guy is so sort of tied into the sort of monster side of the MCU, I'm like, I think I've got a real shot at this one. If, if it doesn't happen here, it's never happening essentially. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I'm just watching Umbrella Academy um, first season. So the, the weirdness of uh, and the, that sense of humor now, I kind of see the parallels between that like dark sense of humor uh, that I think is, you know, I'm definitely the audience for that kind of stuff. Uh, so it doesn't go unappreciated. Nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, Umbrella Academy is always going to be the one that got away from me. That's always going to be the mm-hmm. one of like, oh, that was my baby. And I was so excited. And I had a whole <laughs> seven year plan and everything else. And the people who took over obviously are doing their own thing and making the show their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm happy that it's, I'm happy it's successful for Netflix. I'm happy it's fans love it and, and everything. But for me, it's always just like, you know, it, it's, it's like your ex-girlfriend you, you, that you break up with and then you watch that she goes on to like win an Oscar or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's healthy to, to want them to succeed. <laughs> yeah. It, it's always like, Oh, what would it have been like if I, yeah. if I had, that had been my show. Um, but hey, it's oh, working so good. Mm-hmm. We're going to wonder that forever too now. And maybe someday we can have a second conversation about what you would have done. Um, that's potentially Every- not on air, but <laughs> everything gets rebooted. So in 20 years, yeah. maybe I'll do, we'll do another Umbrella Academy yeah, show. Yeah, the, the new, the latest streaming service, it'll be. Yeah, Umbrella Academy series. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we were just talking about uh, what, drew you to to moon knight and that of course then like one of the things that we're really curious about is the choice of oscar isaac and how he ended up getting involved and and what that you know um process was like for you kind of watching him take on this character and join the project um i can't take credit for the oscar casting that's a hundred percent kevin like those those decisions you know uh, affect way more than my show because these are characters that are potentially you know going to be appearing in Lego sets and theme parks and, and future Avenger movies. Like you just never know what these characters futures are going to hold in the MCU. So we knew from the beginning that, that casting was going to be out of our hands, um, especially when it came to the leads. And so we kind of operated in the writer's room with our fingers crossed the entire time, just saying like, God, the stuff we are asking of an actor here to be able to, embody two distinct personalities and be able to switch between them in a scene um, without like CGI trickery of having his eyes light up or something like that. Like he just needs to be a good enough actor that you can tell who's in control of the body at any given time. And we're like, that's actually a really tall order. Like if, if they don't get an amazing actor for this, um, this character is going to be ridiculous. We're going to look stupid as writers. Um, and, And so when they come back and they're like, Oh yeah, we're thinking Oscar Isaac, like one of the world's greatest movie stars. You're just like a, a, a weight is lifted off your shoulders, where you're like, oh thank God! Like whatever else is going to happen with this show, we're going to have a fucking awesome lead performance. And like anything we throw at that guy, and Ethan Hawke as well, anything we throw at them, you know that they are going to effortlessly just 
take that baton and run with it and make you look so much better. So it was, uh, you know, we, we trusted in Marvel from the beginning that they weren't going to saddle us with some, um, you know, some martial artist like doing his first acting job or something like that. Like we always thought, no, they're going to get someone cool. Um, but Oscar was beyond my wildest dreams. What was it like? Uh, do you remember like if when you might have first seen him kind of transform between the two personalities? I didn't get to be on set because I was, I, I had to, to, there were a lot of projects that I'd put on hold when Moon Knight sort of fell into my lap. Um, and, and as it sort of dragged on to it, into its second and third year, people were getting a little impatient. Um, so I didn't get to, to be on set, but it also means I didn't have to go hang out in the desert in, of Jordan in the middle of, you know, August in 120 degree weather. So there were pros, you know, the pros were, I, I, I didn't die in the desert, um, but the cons were you didn't get to see Oscar doing this in person. Yeah. So I got to see it for the first time in, in just assembly cuts um, and see all the different things he was trying and see the things that were working and that weren't and seeing those moments that he had really keyed into the character and, and some of those really amazing transformation moments like in episode five or, or, or the very end of six, those times where he is playing both characters in the scene and sort of transitioning flawlessly. And, and for me, it was just one of those, holy shit, like I've never seen this in the MCU before. Um, this guy's just operating on a different level. Uh, he, he still blows me away every time I watch the episodes. 100%. Yeah. He's awesome. He's the best. I mean, he is. We- We've we've talked about it a lot on our podcast of how much we we love this show and his him and Ethan Hawke come up a lot because of just their performances in general. But one thing that is very interesting that feels so different from the MCU is this is very heavy character pieces. Mm-hmm. Like like the you as a comic book fan you would expect to focus on one or the other, but you focused on both Mark and Steven. Yeah, and the transitions that you throw in there and, and everything you have going on, what was the writing process like in the writer's room to, de- to decide how you're going to tell this story with, with the, dis- the dissociative personality disorder? Um, it was, it was a constant struggle it was, because you really feel the weight of that when you're, when you're doing something for Marvel, most of the time as a writer, um, you know, I'm sitting here in my office with my, my dog on my lap and, and just sort of writing in a vacuum. And you're like, I don't know if this will get made. If it does, I don't know if people will see it. I don't know if they'll care. Um, and, and when you're doing something for Marvel, you're like, whether we knock this out of the park or fuck up this entire thing up, like 50 million people are still going to watch this. And you know that, you know, and you know that a, a, a portion of that audience is going to have their own struggles with mental health, which is what the show is ultimately about. Um, it may not be DID specifically, but everyone has their own thing that they're sort of struggling with. And so it was really important to our writers room to know that whatever you're putting that out there in, in the universe um, isn't like falling in a void. It's going to land on some really susceptible people and it's going to mean something to those people. And you want to make sure that what you're putting out is ultimately positive and empowering at the end of the day, as opposed to making them feel attacked or making them feel like, oh, that, you know, I was already struggling and then I watched this show and now I feel even worse about what's going on. So, so we felt that weight, first of all, and also, um, you know, we had a, a directive from Marvel. Kevin was really excited by the fact that in TV shows, they can do things that you can't in a movie. In, in a 110 minute movie, 
a lot of the weird edges, a lot of the detours and the character moments get sanded down because it's all about the MacGuffin fight. It's all about the villain battle in the third act. Um, and, and so he knew that the, the, the greatest thing that the TV shows give us is the opportunity to spend time with the characters. And so there was a constant, not a pushback, but a constant reminder coming from Marvel of like, it's okay to just have characters talking to each other or a character talking to himself for, for three or four or five or six pages, which you would almost never see in a script for like a traditional Marvel movie. So it gave us a lot of freedom on one hand that we wouldn't necessarily have um, writing stuff for the sort of the traditional feature side of things. Uh, but at the same time, you really did feel that pressure of knowing like, oh, if we fuck this up, if we get this wrong, there are genuine ramifications. Like you, mm-hmm. want, to, you want the people to, who see this to feel seen and empowered and feel like it's made their lives better in some way and not attacked or persecuted, you know, like a a movie like Split or something is very divisive Mm -hmm. in the DID community because it falls into like the evil alters trope and it sort of fetishizes them and exoticizes them. And, And for us, it was very important to like, how do we avoid some of those traditional pitfalls? How do we make something that is still telling a really fun, engaging story, um, but at the same time uh, is realistic in its in its depiction of mental health? Very amused that you mentioned Split because I might have two on an episode of our podcast uh, with a similar tone. But um, it's I, what I find so interesting about this representation of DID and mental health and trauma is that it feels so... Um, it feels so informed, like just one, not what I generally expect to get from Marvel and um, something that I wonder, like, how do you do research for that kind of thing? Or is that something that just kind of comes from the human in you? <laughs> um, no, Marvel was actually really great about providing us um, as many resources as possible. So we had a mental health um, specialist, uh, Dr. Paul Puri. Um, who would come in to advise us on the mental health. We had um, a a Jewish rabbi to advise us about that. We had um, an Egyptian archaeologist who would would chime in for some of those facts. So they were great about saying, if you have questions, we will put you in touch with an expert. We will put you in touch with a specialist. They would give their, you know, they give all of their scripts to different teams to read it for for cultural sensitivity, for accuracy, to make sure we're not inadvertently saying or doing anything harmful. Um, so, so, you know, I did a lot of my own research and a lot of my own reading, um, but Marvel was always there to sort of provide guidance um, whenever we needed it and make sure we didn't kind of stray too far off the path. You know, in many more ways than one, this series was much more mature than what we're used to seeing in the Marvel universe. And it's for, let's say, a more mature audience. And I mean, you know, that could easily turn a lot of people off who are, you know, I brought up the fact of it's hard to believe that Moon Knight and let's say Guardians of the Galaxies are all in the same, you know, timeline, you know, it's very different viewing experiences. Um, But like, how did you decide to balance, you know, like the, the, you know, mature side of, you know, mental health struggles, but also there's so many hysterical moments in the series i mean was there ever an idea to like maybe go lighter or maybe back off a little bit or even go darker uh how did you balance that um that's a good question i think it was an ongoing just gut check for me coming in i was like we're gonna be even in my very first meetings i was like the show needs to be fun um because we're dealing with hard um potentially tricky subjects and i always knew from the beginning that we were going to have that episode five 
that sort of late stage thing that was going to sort of deal delve into his past. And we always knew that that was going to be traumatic and upsetting stuff. So I was like, we have to surround the sort of tough stuff with a kind of crunchy candy shell uh, to make it all go down a little smoother. And also just, I'm an MCU fan. I'm, I'm there opening night for every new movie. I'm one of those guys cheering his head off in the theater for Endgame. And so I, I, I wanted something that felt like it was part of the MCU. I didn't want something that felt like, you know, closer to the Netflix shows or, or closer to a, a DC extended universe movie. Um, I, it was important to me that like, yes, this needs its own identity and it needs its own tone and texture, but at the same time, you still have to make sure that this is a, you know, there are families out there that watch Marvel together and that's one of their bonding things and you have to, and, and so I didn't want to, to make sort of a, an R rated show that, or, or a show that is oppressive or, or too graphic or gruesome that would sort of exclude that big portion of of the marvel fan base you, you know so that was always the push and pull of of let's make sure that we're making something that still feels like it has the heart and tone of an mcu show but let's see if we can push it in some weird new directions and yeah do stuff that's perhaps a little bit darker or a little more character based than we might have seen in the past one of the things i truly love about all the different new marvel things that come out is it's like they'll have a new location a new cast of characters and the fact that this one really uh, focused on egypt and you had you know we had the director um uh what is it mohammed diab you had hisham nasi you know all these different like actual egyptians working on the project like to me this felt like such a more of a fun adventure to go on because of that um so i was just curious like um oh we also got our first egyptian superhero um that was put in that final episode, but you know, how, how did that like inform your process and like kind of help elevate the series to be something even more interesting? Um, yeah, I, I think, I think the Egyptology aspect was, was in there from the very beginning because that was one of the things we knew Kevin Feige responded to that. He liked the idea mm-hmm. that you could be on a bus and look out the window and see a, a giant Egyptian bird skeleton um, standing on the street corner, um, which I think is a panel from a Jeff Lemire run that we just stole pretty directly for, for episode two. Um, so we always knew that, that the Egyptology was going to be important. And, and I had kind of pitched the show as, look, everyone's expecting Batman. Everyone thinks we're doing Batman. Let's do Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let's do the yes. movie. Let's do Ghostbusters. Let's do an 80s Amblin movie to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so once we knew that and, and, and Kevin was really responsive to that and thought that was a fun idea. And, and so once, once we knew that it was going to be a sort of globe-trotting treasure hunt of a show, it felt very obvious that Egypt has to be our ultimate location. That has to be where we're going. Um, and, and so that was definitely baked into our concept from the beginning. But then, yeah, I think, like you said, the hiring of Mohammed and all of the, the Egyptian composers and 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 crew members that he brought on board, um, I, I think really lent it an air of, of accuracy that, that it definitely wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, they were very passionate about. Yeah, honestly, that what you just said, the, um, you know, the adventure sh- show, whether it was Raiders of the Lost Ark, or like for me, The Mummy, I just love that original Mummy movie. It. it had all those tones of like horror, you know, adventure horror almost that we yeah. just don't get enough of. So yeah, that, that was awesome. Bring back The Mummy. That's all I said. Please, and let's Seriously. do it right. Oh my yeah. gosh! Really quickly, uh, May May's uh, character Layla. Um, yeah. 
as we, we said before, she becomes the first Egyptian superhero. Uh, is she the Scarlet Scarab? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That was the idea. We, we, we didn't know that from the beginning because she was originally introduced. Um, we just wanted a sort of Marion Ravenwood to pair with our indie, uh, someone that would have some fun mm-hmm. banter. Um, and, and we knew that she needed to be at least partially Egyptian because we couldn't control the casting of Moon Knight, but we were like, we're going to assume he's, he's a white guy since he is in the comics. Um, but we, but, but that was the reason we moved away from Marlene as the, the female love interest. Cause we're like, we wanted to avoid the white savior trope. We also wanted to avoid the colonialism and imperialism mm-hmm. that comes with a pair of white people walking through an Egyptian tomb and just being like, Ooh, I'll take this. I'll take that. Um, <laughs> so, so she was kind of written from the beginning to be uh, half Egyptian. And then when Mohammed came on board, they pushed to make her even more. Um, and, and once we started talking about like, well, maybe we should give her powers by the end of it. Um, one of our executives, Nick Pepin came back and said, well, actually the Scarlet Scarab is canonically like the first Egyptian superhero. Um, so, so we could, we could start placing some like hidden scarabs in here every now and then we can give her the last name Alpha Oli as like a subtle nod. Um, you know, knowing that only the most hardcore fans would ever get that sort of deep cut reference. Um, so, and some of them certainly did. I saw it on Twitter. Some people guessed exactly where we're going with it the second we introduced her. But I think for everyone else, um, I, I think it was fun kind of getting to watch a, he- you know, a hero's origin story without necessarily knowing over the course of the show that that's what you were watching. Um, she kind of goes from being a fun supporting character into someone where it's like, holy shit, I would watch a show of just this person, um, which would be awesome. For sure. Totally. Um, so on our podcast, one of the things we do is as we watch each episode and break it down each week, we like to throw out theories or predictions as even the show goes along. And I kept every week we'd watch an episode and they'd be like, okay, bridge, like, you know, what theories you got? And I'd be like, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea where the show is going to go next. Like, I have no idea what's happening. Like my mind is like warped. But (laughs) after we got like halfway through the series, I was like, you know what? They haven't, they haven't told us like how this fits in the MCU like did the blip happen like what's going on uh because in all the other series at some point or another we would get a little insight on that so do you have you know any idea of where this fits in the Marvel timeline or any hints you might be able to give us I have no idea timeline wise (laughs) because we didn't know when we would be debuting um I think our original game plan was that um Moon Knight was probably going to be coming out in fall of this year and I, I think once they saw the sort of rough cuts of all the episodes, they, they realized, oh, this is in good enough shape that that I think we can release this even earlier than we had been anticipating. So we didn't know if we would be coming out before or after Doctor Strange and and Thor Love and Thunder and Miss Marvel and, and everything else that's in development. We just didn't know where we would fall on that scale. So we tried to to keep the the references to the timeline sort of fluid like for me it, it just probably happens chronologically and and where the mcu is currently at i feel like it's probably modern day marvel wherever that currently is um in terms of of the blip of it all uh it was definitely something we discussed and and internally in the room we all assumed like yeah mark probably would have had to survive the blip because i think if you look at steven and as someone who is someone who is trying to figure out the mysteries of his own life and, and sort of gaps in his memory and things like that. Um, I, th- I think if, if he had had the blip in his past 
and wasn't acknowledging it, it probably would have been weird. So we always kind of assumed that he had probably survived it. But at the same time, Marvel internally is always hyper aware of like, how much are we using the blip? How much are we using portals? How much are we using male villains versus female villains versus this versus that uh, to make sure that they don't get like two or three projects in a row where the villains seem too similar or everyone's talking about the blip or, or these things are happening. So I think the fact that shows like, like Falcon Winter Soldier and Hawkeye probably went in much stronger on the blip elements. Um, when it came to us, they were like, just pull back. We've got enough blips conversations happening in the MCU. Like, let's just leave those stones uncovered. And then if we ever need to go back in the future and reverse engineer some answers for something, um, we've given ourselves enough runway to do so. We're going to close with our uh, the verse Furious 3 questions. Basically, we're going to give you a this, this. Or, yeah, a this or that. And we just want a quick answer. And uh, we have three of them for you. So um, starting off, Moon Knight or Mr. Knight? Uh, <laughs> Moon Knight in the costume, but Steven as an alter. Steven, I'm, I'm team Steven over team Mark. But in, if I'm choosing between the costumes, uh, I got to go with the cape. There. Awesome. No so, capes. I think you've already answered um, number two, two <laughs> which is Steve or Mark. Team Steve. Oh, Team Steven for yeah. sure. Team Steven with us. I think all of us were. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then I guess the hardest question: steak or salad? <laughs> I'm actually not the world's biggest steak fan, but I hate salads, so I gotta go. Steak. <laughs> Have you ever had a Cobb salad though? That's like a New York what thing. About I guess you see it all the time. <laughs> I just <laughs> marry the two. You just gotta take out all the salad first. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm a Midwest kid, so my my eating habits are just I'm telling you that a Cobb salad would blow your mind. Desk, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. Talking to a garbage human. <laughs> oh, all right. Again, we absolutely love this series. Um, thank you so much for joining us here on the Verse. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to speak again. Again, congratulations on the series. We absolutely loved it. Oh, thanks so much, guys. You're so nice. If you ever want a pep talk from us, just tune in to like episode five discussion, I think. That was like, that was maybe our favorite. I I will do that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Episode five was definitely the shining light for me. It was our favorite. Thank you so much, guys. This is fun. That was our interview with Jeremy Slater, creator and writer for Marvel's Moon Knight, currently streaming on Disney+. I hope you enjoyed the peek behind the Marvel curtain. We're excited to see what Jeremy's working on next, which includes Mortal Kombat 2 and a screenplay for Wile E. Coyote? Hmm. We probably should have asked him more about that one, huh? Anyways... We'll be back soon with coverage of your favorite movies and TV shows across the pop culture multiverse. So until then, see you later, and thanks for listening to The Verse. The Verse is presented by ScreenRadar.com and produced by Steven Kuzakowski.